poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest, quite frankly, needs no elaborate introduction to get you excited about hearing from him, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Phil Galfond is a living legend in the world of poker at the ripe old age of 35. What would be the career-defining highlight of pretty much anybody else's poker career, having won three WSOP gold bracelets, is merely a footnote in Galfon's incredible journey through cards. He's the founder of one of the most prestigious training platforms in poker run at once, and is doing his damnedest to realize his vision of providing the poker world with the platform he believes we deserve at run at once poker. If you're not living in the U.S. and you're living somewhere where you can play on Run It Once Poker and you have not checked it out yet, I'm exhorting you to go and do that right now. It simply isn't enough to sit back and complain about the way platforms treat their players. If you want things to change for the better because you love this great game of poker as much as I do, you have to start taking action and do whatever you can to support the good guys in this world. In my conversation with Phil Galfond, you're going to learn his poker origin story from party poker sit and goes all the way up through the nosebleeds, what I believe to be his superpower that has allowed him to thrive in a way almost nobody else has, Phil's counterintuitive advice on bankroll management and why he's never been afraid of taking his shot, and much, much more. Before we dive into this show, if you'd like to be more efficient in your poker learning while gaining focus and clarity so that you can skyrocket your poker results, check out PokerWithPresence.com. One more time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. Now, without any further ado, I bring to you one of the most brilliant, humble, and influential human beings in the world of poker, Phil Galfon. Phil, Mr. Galfon, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. You've been somebody that I've looked up to in the world of poker. I'm sure you've never heard that before for a long time. Thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Kind of, uh, you know, one of the top 10 biggest influences in my own career. You're a cash game guy primarily, so that's obviously very appealing to me. I wanted to start out at the very beginning, actually, I'm going to ask you to go back in time and I want to know your story. How did you get involved in playing cards? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Let's go back. Um, I, I guess from the age of 12 or uh, somewhere between 12 and 14, I started playing cards with my friends and it became like the main activity we would do when we get together none of the games that we played are anything that I've like that exists on any, you know, online poker site or in any card room, but just gambling. 
and I wasn't, I was probably average. I wasn't, you know, particularly, I wasn't a standout in any way, maybe a little above average, but there was no, like, there were no thoughts of strategy really yet. You just kind of, just kind of played. Um, that stopped or slowed down when I was 17 or 18, my last couple of years of high school. And then I, um, Why I went to college. Down? I think actually it was just our group of friends didn't really disband, but I was hanging out with different people. Um, and that game and like, so were other people. So the game kind of died down. Yeah. Broke up. Yeah. And went to college, didn't think about cards. Um, I had also at that point, like I would played some, I even played like online blackjack. I, I liked to gamble. Um, but yeah, I went to college, didn't think about cards. And then, um, you know, the boom happened. So I, uh, started college at the beginning, uh, at the end of 2003 and somewhere around the, the end of my freshman year. So early 2004, a friend of mine from those games, um, who I'd known since we were five reached out to me and he said, uh, well, he actually, First, he he won a tournament on party poker for like thirty thousand dollars, and this was the talk of our our friend group. Of course, we weren't really in touch that much, or I wasn't really in touch with them. But I, I heard about it, and um, he reached out to me specifically and said, "Phil, you know, I I picked up some strategy books and have been, you know, learning to play well, and uh, I think you'd be really good at this if you try." And so I don't know. I liked the sound of that. Uh, so I did go and pick up a couple of books. The f- The first one I read, I don't remember which it was. It was not a particularly good one. But the second I read was Hold'em Poker for Advanced Players by Sklansky. And through that, I found the 2 plus 2 forums. And I started playing sit and goes on party poker in early 2004. And it became, uh, once the semester ended, so like summer of 2004, I was playing. I, I played a lot during the summer. And was in the part of the sit and go forum on two plus two, which at that time, uh, those forums were very, very helpful. And, uh, there's a lot of strategy content. Uh, and I became probably, it wasn't until the end of that calendar year that I think I became a winning player in this $10 sit and goes. Oh, wow. So you're playing a lot and we're not an what was not an active winning player for a while. Well, I guess I was not playing that much until it, it's tough to say. Um, I I was playing a lot over the summer, probably not playing very well. Um, and it was around, I guess, the end of the summer must have been when I found two plus two and started taking it more seriously and and reading strategy posts that were specific to sit and goes because like Holden Poker for Advanced Players. I mean, I haven't read it in over a decade, but it was a great book as I remember it. But it didn't tell you much about how to play a you know ten handed party poker sit and go it was limit hold'em too it was mostly limit hold'em they had a couple of examples i believe that were no limit hold'em but um but yeah it didn't teach me much about that and so it was through reading two plus two mostly and talking strategy um started posting on two plus two i think around then and uh, that's how i became a winning sit and go player which is was easier then than it is today but um but still was you know an accomplishment i, I did want to ask you about your thoughts on this because i hear a lot of times folks will be like, oh, if I would have played poker 10 years ago, I'd be an yeah. instant millionaire overnight, right? And I'm just like shaking my head. Like, it, you know, 
the game was easier, but that was because everybody was worse and there was so much less information, right? There, you still had to try. A lot of people still failed even back then. What are your thoughts um, when you hear somebody say something like that? Yeah, it's it's tough to say for sure. I think it would have. I think starting from scratch back then would have been easier, but I don't know if it would be that much easier. What I think would be a lot easier is going back to 2005, having a friend who was really good and starting then. Because, yeah, because it you didn't have to learn as much to be successful then. And if you knew somebody who who was really a really strong player, they could get you there, I think, pretty quickly. Which is what happened to me. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I... I had a spades partner again a card game completely separate mm-hmm. than poker we played yahoo spades with each other and like constantly chatted we were regular partners and then his mom was a blackjack dealer and he fell into poker like at the end of high school and then three years later he's like hey i'm making a living playing poker i think you'd be good at this same exact mm-hmm. kind of uh, kind of thing and i just never looked back and he was really way better than me he very intelligent guy, strategy oriented. And without him, I don't know if I would have been as successful as I was in the beginning. It would have taken me a lot longer on my own. But you find two plus two, which like you said, back then was just a fertile ground for poker talent and crushers, all concentrated in that one forum. What was something, what was like a catalyst when you made the jump from like beating the $10 sit and goes to moving up the ladder? It's a good question. And if I'm being honest, I don't exactly remember. Uh, I kind of felt like I was doing the same kind of stuff for a while there as I went from, it, it was weird. I kind of, I, I would move up through the stakes. I never had good bankroll management um, early in my career or late in my career. <laughs> um, I, I, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I, I, I do want to press. Okay. I, I always kind of pushed it with um, taking shots at higher stakes. And uh, so I always was aggressive with, you know, bankroll considerations. But I do, one thing I always was able to do and still am able to do if necessary is to just take your shot with, you know, fewer buy-ins than you should um, by, you know, if you ask anybody uh, in poker, but then just step back down and rebuild. And that happened to me a lot that I would move up, you know, to, to a stake where I had, let's say, uh, in sit and goes like 20 buy-ins or 15 buy-ins and then lose five. And then I'd go back. Um, and I would do the same in cash games, uh, move up to a stake where I had, let's say 12 buy-ins lose two and then go back. Um, I did that a lot. Um, I don't know if it, it wasn't really, most of the time, it wasn't really a calculated strategy. Um, it was that I, I wanted to try. I wanted to move up. I was excited. I, I had a little gamble in me. But I do think it is a viable strategy in a situation where you are skilled enough to beat the bigger game um, because there are a lot of scenarios where, you know, you move up, you run good instead of bad, and now your your earn is much higher than it otherwise would have been. So I, I do think that if you're fully capable of stepping back down mentally resetting, not chasing your losses, um, which I've always been able to do, then it's a, it can be a pretty good, 
bankroll management or lack thereof uh, strategy. But yeah, I, I always was like that. And the, in sit and goes, I, I settled, I was playing 10s for a while or 11s, 33s and 109s. Those were like my main, my main, I don't know, st- stops along the way. Um, I played the other stakes in between some, but um, those were the ones that I kind of settled at for, for longer periods of time, I remember. You know, I played in a lot of those sit and goes on party poker back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, the two hundreds. I do want to ask you about something that is kind of near and dear to my own heart. Yeah. The step tournaments. Yeah. How did you do in those? I'm assuming just hearing this little bit about you <laughs> that you took your shot and I did, did yeah. battle in the step tournament. So tell me about that. I did pretty well. I if if I remember correctly, I never really settled at the two hundreds. I I barely played 200s. I was a 109 guy for a really long time. And the steps came out. Um, and I did play, I played a reasonable number of 1Ks and a, some 2Ks, but they didn't run super often. And I don't remember exactly, but I did, I know that I was a winner in the 1Ks or, you know, in the 1Ks and 2Ks combined and a pretty decent winner. And obviously there was some run good involved in that. Those were f- super fun tournament structures. They were I, really exciting, yeah. I was uh, like, I was a pro, and I had a roommate who, you know, had a day job, and like he battled in those step tournaments for like f- three months. It seemed yeah. like he was just like going up and going down and going up and going down, and then he finally made it to the final one and bubbled, <laughs> and was yeah. like so devastated. Like yeah. three months of work, but I mean, he got his money worth. For did. Yeah. buying in and just getting to play in so many of those step tournaments. If you don't remember, if you're listening to this and you don't remember, the step tournaments were basically, you know, the the highest tier was the only tier that you could make money, and you would win tickets based like top seven go to the next tier at like the bottom one, and then you just take keep taking steps up, and at some points like five, the top five progress, but then six and seven just go down a step or get to replay the current step. And so you could get stuck in step purgatory for a while, but yeah. they were, uh, they were just a super fun thing. Speaking of two plus two, I know that this is kind of jumping forward in the future, but I know like the dirt challenge, you were on the exclusion list. I think the only person mm-hmm. on the exclusion list. I was, yeah. Because y'all were friends. So mm-hmm. how did this friendship come about and was Tom Dwan, you know, who was the most influential person in your circle at that time? That's a, that's a good question. So the, the kind of crew that I ran with was the, the two plus two, like I, I, guys I met in two plus two, uh, sit and go for him. And Tom was kind of on the fringe of that group. Like he was a friend of a friend basically for a long time and uh, knew him through Dave Benefield, basically friends with Dave and actually roommates with Dave. Um, and so I met him through Dave. We, yeah, I would say for even a couple of years, didn't talk that much directly. Um, and he was playing, you know, I, I was playing high stakes sit and goes and then 510 cash after like, while he was playing 5,100 um, and L. So he was, he was, you know, well ahead of me in terms of, of stakes and things like that. He was in a different league. He was always always really nice, um, even when I didn't know him very well. And I, I mean, we, we'd have some conversations about poker, but it wasn't until I started being interested in playing PLO, which was a couple of years later, that what, he was really helpful. How did that come about? 
why, why did you transition to PLO? What, what is it about PLO that you just love? So we're jumping pretty far ahead now because I was already at this point, by the time I started playing PLO, I was playing nosebleeds, uh, no limit cash. Okay. Um, and the reason that I got interested in PLO is because the nosebleed action at no limit was drying up a little bit and there were just constant games running at like 200, 400 um, at PLO. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me interrupt. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Let me close this gap. How do we yeah. go from like the one Oh nines <laughs> to the nosebleed, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. How, did, how did that transition happen? Um, so I, uh, the summer of math. So when I was 21, so that must've been 2006. Yeah. That, that summer I went out for the world series of poker, stayed in the house with uh, a handful of these guys. And that was the point where I really progressed my game. I guess actually I should go back like three months prior. I decided to start learning cash games um, at the suggestion of Peter Jetton, who was played sit and goes, moved to cash, said, you know, convinced me to, to try cash, said he could make more money playing cash games. Do you make any decisions? <laughs> <laughs> Does just everybody convince you to do these things? <laughs> I was, um, I guess I was uh, impressionable. I don't know. I, I'm sure that people told me to try things that I didn't try, but I did, um, I was kind of comfortable in whatever I was doing at the time. And so it kind of took someone else to come up with the idea for me to try. So I, I was, I wasn't really thinking about trying other things, like, especially the unknown. I just, you know, you could go on the two plus two forums and read about high stakes cash and people could guess their win rates and things like that. And before I tried cash, I, I believe it was like, the, the prevailing theory in the sit and go forums where sit and goes were a better place um, to play with regards to earn rate compared to bankroll requirements. So until you got to the top and couldn't play any higher, it didn't make sense to to play cash. I don't know. I don't remember uh, well enough if that's true or not. Probably not. Well, it's uh, biased for sure. Yeah, yeah. The sit and go thread. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, yeah. the sit and go part of the forum. So there's certainly biases there. And, you know, what you mentioned is, you know, it's a cognitive bias, like the, the ambiguity effect. We don't know if an outcome is going to be positive or negative, but what you're doing is working. It is yeah, positive. Exactly. So it's really hard to switch to something, you know, to venture into the unknown. Yeah. And I will say to your point, I, so compared to my peers, I've doubted my own abilities um, and, uh, in comparison, you know, thought highly of others abilities much, much more, um, than, than anybody I know. And, you know, I, I've over the years met a lot of successful players, super smart people who just 99% of people, they don't care what they have to say. They, they think they know better. And in a lot of cases they do. Um, but I think I've, I've, I've taken it too far, perhaps. Like, uh, at least in terms of reality, I I have taken it too far the other way. And I think I've routinely um, assumed that people knew better than me. And so that did lead me to kind of taking advice um, probably more than I should have and, and not making decisions for myself for, for a while. What are the benefits? What do you think are like the hidden benefits of underestimating yourself, seeking out opinions from people that you respect regularly? It's a good question. There are definitely benefits. I think most of the benefits though you see in kind of the, or the, the examples of the downsides of being the opposite way. And I've known a lot of players who have 
have been overconfident and kind of stagnated because they refuse to to question their own strategy. I think that, yeah, like I said, I probably was too far in the other direction. But yeah, I think I, the benefits of being wired the way I am is that you never you never think you're too good to learn. Um, you always uh, think you have room to improve. Uh, the downsides are, uh, you know, is you're too quick to doubt yourself and to lose confidence uh, in yourself, whether it's, you know, you're uh, playing in a game and you, and you have some bad results and think you can't beat it, or you want to make a play that's, you know, a little bit riskier, but you kind of don't trust yourself or you think that, that your opponent is is too good and they'll figure it out. You think your opponent knows what level you're on or is a level of head, ahead of you and um, you shy away from making a good play because uh, you think they're going to figure it out. So th- those are the the problems I've run into over my career that I've had to kind of push through. But yeah. It, it's confidence is a weird word. And I've always, mm-hmm. I've always found it odd. The poker players conundrum of needing to be humble so that you can learn and continue growing, but also straddling the fence of putting out a challenge against anybody in the world <laughs> to play a heads up PLO against. Right. Like yeah. th- this is a funny tightrope to walk especially you know for you i'm alluding to you i have not challenged the entire world no, yet but not yet. um not yet but it, it's just a funny funny mix um personality mix and i don't think it's coincidental that you have had the amount of success that you have had being so humble and regularly questioning all the things you do i think that it can be seen as a negative and there are negative aspects to it, but I would much prefer the humble player constantly asking questions and constantly thinking deeper than a player who's on the other end of the spectrum that just thinks they know all the things and are resistant to growth. Yeah. I would, I would very much agree if we're talking about, um, you know, students or low stakes, uh, small stakes players or people getting into the game because overconfidence when you don't know that much is, is really detriment, detrimental or right. when you think <laughs> you think you know a lot and you're wrong. At the highest levels, though, I, I think I disagree and not for any um, kind of like logical uh, reason, um, but more just uh, anecdotally, most of the people who I know who play very high stakes are are very confident um and so i i do think that a lack of confidence can can probably get in the way if you are very very good i don't know why exactly that is but it just yeah anecdotally a lot of the players who who play um who, who, who are very very successful i i think kind of lean uh overconfident it's interesting because I, as you progress, like, like you, you have to have humility, but then it's also like you have to have confidence in the face of people disagreeing with something. And you have to stick to your, be able to stick to your guns and like run a big bluff that may look crazy to the world and may look crazy to the people that you interact with. But you have to say like, I can, I'm going to objectively look at this and then make, draw my own conclusion. And if you're still convinced, 
that you did the right thing, then you know you have to you do have to have the confidence to stick your guns in a situation like that. And this is probably one of the reasons why I think poker forums degrade over time is you get so many people just agreeing with one another and folks are afraid to disagree. And even like in my case, um, I never really participated in two plus two because it was like, if you posted an opinion, that's like not standard, nobody's going to care. Like nobody's going to give it credence. You're just going to invest a lot of energy into a thing that is just completely ignored. And I just realized like, okay, I'm never going to be somebody that settles with standard first of all. And second of all, like, why am I going to spend my time doing this? Right? Like I want to talk to a guy that's like, yeah, I'm going to look at this objectively and I'll tell you if you're being dumb. However, maybe there's something good in this that we need ought to explore. And like these question marks in the decision tree are often where we can find the edge, right? Like that's where the edge comes from. And a big edge can come when the community is hundred percent certain on a thing that is not a hundred percent certain, you know, doesn't merit a hundred percent certainty. Yeah. No, there are a lot of those spots that come up. Of course, of course. And let's go back a little. So you're leveling up. How do you, how do you make it to nosebleeds? First of all, like where does, where does that transition come from? Is it Mm -hmm. you're sitting goes, you start playing cash. Yeah. So when I started playing cash, I basically dropped sit and goes entirely. And I mean, I, I jumped right into 510 cash, which I had the bankroll for, but is would be ill-advised today, uh, certainly. But the games were, you know, so, softer back then. And my kind of sit-and-go um, strategy, which, you know, the early level sit-and-go strategy, which was basically being a nit, was enough, I think, to make me at least break even at the beginning when there are so many wild players who are putting in way too much money post-flop. Um, I was definitely too tight and too uncreative to start, but I mean, got to start somewhere. Um, but I do think even right when I jumped into 510 with no cash experience, I was probably a favorite, um, not a big one, but probably just, just by being too tight. Well, let's just like, if three guys are losing and the average loss race rate for like a fish is 20 to 30 big blinds, well, that's 75 big blinds divided amongst three players <laughs> per hundred, yeah. right? Like it's not, it's not super crazy to think that a tight strategy is just going to take some percentage of that money that the, the recreational players are losing. Yeah. But there were definitely, I mean, the good regulars, I, I can still look back and remember like uh, Blood Sweat Tears, who is uh, the top, top winner at 1020 on party. That's uh, Brian Roberts, right? Is no, that- it's not. He was... Well, actually, I don't know what he was on party, but no, Blood Sweat Tears is somebody who is, I don't, I believe he's very private and uh, really? someone unknown. He His screen names on like Full Tilt and stuff were known afterwards and stars, but I don't know his real name. Um, it's, I don't think people do. That friend of mine that I came up with, I, I remember him battling. I, I call it, I, for some reason, I pronounce it like Blade Swatters. I've always oh. thought of it as like Blade Swatters, but now that you yeah. say it, it's blood, sweat, tears. And like my friend battled him. Unsurprisingly, my friend would go broke a number of times in his poker career through (laughs) bad, uh, bad game selection. He's choosing like the alpha at the biggest stake on party to pick a fight with. But, um, I do remember that guy very, very specifically. Yeah. And I remember 
he so he was one of the first to three bet very aggressively um and three bet a range that's probably that's actually you know too wide uh today but it worked very well for him and i can just i can still remember myself as you know i was a, i was a pro technically or a lot of semi pro but you know was not that great at cash and i just remember thinking like man he's he's three betting so many hands and he's betting flop and he's just like betting again a lot on the turn so i'm just gonna call and like when i flop a big hand i'm gonna get him <laughs> and uh how that I worked called, out it, it didn't work well i call so many three bets fold the flop so so often fold the turn so often and then maybe like raise the flop or or maybe or bet the turn if he checks with a big hand and then he fold it so like I, he he absolutely crushed me and so many other players who just didn't understand the consequences of well, yeah, under defending on on the uh, flop and turn, or or and actually, I would probably over defend pre flop against his three bets because I was excited to flop a big hand and and bust him. Uh, yeah, it was he. So like, I, I was getting beat by the good players for sure. I, so I, if that money spread out, uh, you know, I was getting a lot. I, I was getting less of theirs, and I was losing some of it back to the the better players. And that dude, he was insanely aggressive. Like I remember him being just insanely aggressive compared to the other people in the pool, and like. You know, what happens when a guy is that aggressive is like he knows how humans react to pressure Mm -hmm. because he has the experience dealing with humans reacting to his pressure. So like he's not just going to give you a stack when you flop big, right? Like he's going to realize that like, oh, this guy is taking an aggressive action. Typically, they don't do this. The population is going to under bluff. Therefore, I'm just going to overfold and like when you're the aggressor and you're pushing it like that and guys are just sitting back like a lottery ticket, yeah, you're just going to get smashed. Like there's nothing I love more in a cash game than just being super aggressive and guys just falling in line. When they stop three betting me, when they stop playing back at me, like I feel untouchable. Yep. Yeah. So that, I mean, so yeah, he and a few others, uh, probably after him, but figured that out. And uh, did really well. But anyways, I, I was a five ten player for a long time. I actually never was like a steady ten twenty player either. Um, so I was a five ten player for a long time. I started doing very well at five ten, and um, then a, then uh, I played a little bit on on full tilt and UB. Didn't play any stars yet, and uh, on those sites, I would take some shots sometimes twenty five fifty, occasionally <clears throat> occasionally fifty one hundred. How did it I mean, feel? How did it feel moving up? It was exciting, but um, you know the first several shots didn't go well, so it was it was stressful. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I have a very memorable uh, had a very memorable session at fifty hundred when I, I mean my bankroll was was a hundred thousand. I was buying in ten k, and uh, I lost, and I was playing against like a true fish, um, which is why I was like, well, I I have to, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do uh, this, yeah, and uh, I, I lost, uh, I think almost half half of that bankroll. Um, for dropping back down but um but yeah there were there were times like that and it's funny i i I, that shot that didn't go well was very memorable a few times i would play uh like 25 50 and 51 on ub and i'd play like it was mostly six max games but there was prolod and uh those guys that i looked up to and saw playing the big games um those are memorable but actually i don't really recall the time that that i took the shot and it stuck but i know it happened but it was just I don't know. The, the the painful memories are the ones that stand out a little is, bit more. Isn't that how it goes in life? We we remember we remember we're we're 
we're programmed to remember the times that we touch the stove and it's on and we burn our hand and not the yeah. thousands of times we're navigating the stuff and nothing happens. Yeah. Um, so basically yes. it just stuck. And then, yeah, so it was, ten, it was five ten for a very long time, a couple shots at 2550 or 1020. They had 1025 on UB also, but, uh, 2550 across a couple sites, step back down to five ten. I mean, this happened a few times. Um, and then at one point I was a 2550 player. Um, and from there, I don't know, this was mostly full tilt. Then I played a lot of 2550, six max, no limit. Played some heads up. It was kind of weird because I didn't specialize in any, like I didn't specialize heads up or six max. I just played both. And yeah. Like, what were you, do you remember like your thought process back then? Like, was there a goal? What was the the end goal? Were you hoping to reach? I can distinctly remember back when I was playing 109s that I uh, really wanted um, to play in some like like WPT and WSOP like 10K tournaments and like win a title and like and you know be famous get you know play a televised tournament basically and so I had even I sat down and and like did some math on my ROI and how many hours I could put in each month and I was like okay well if I play this much then maybe um you know every month and a half I can go play a 10k and um good and bankroll that, management <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that was my goal at the time um I didn't hold on to that goal for long I did I did go play a couple of 10ks as soon as I turned 21 but um and broke even but by the time I was playing 2550 on full tilt like the whole full tilt era it just felt I was just trying to make money to move up it was like kind of like a video game and like I wanted to get to the next level I wanted to beat the next level and then I wanted to to beat the next level and it was all like I didn't want money for any real world things at that point I just wanted to move up and compete and I don't know if I'm sure there was some element of, you know, wanting the the glory, but, and some element of just, you know, when you play a game, the goal is to win and the goal is to progress. Um, and so I was just, I mean, I played a lot of video games as a kid. So maybe that's just in my head is like, okay, this is what you do. And I remember times like you would, you'd play, I'd be playing 51 heads up and I'd be like, okay, I, I'm, I think I'm ready to try a 100, 200 level. And I just go look in the lobby and if, if the only person sitting was Phil Ivy, I'd just sit with him because I was ready. I was like, okay, it's 100, 200 level time. Uh, it wasn't like a, it wasn't about earning money and it wasn't about maximizing my EV. It was just like, I, I want to try the next, I want to move up basically. Do you know where that comes from? Like any idea, because not everybody's programmed in this way, clearly, because there's yeah. very few people that reach the rarefied air of 200, 400 heads up and sitting against Phil Ivy just, because you want to, <laughs> just because he's there. I think I have um, a weird mix of this, you know, a lot of self-doubt um, with this kind of little thing in the back of my mind of like a kind of fantasy of like, what if I, what if I could be the best? Like, what if I could be wildly successful at this? And so I would never, it was never that I thought that I really thought I would be or could be, but it's like, I thought maybe there's a small chance, you know, and, and so I'd never find out, uh, if I don't try, um, I guess. So I guess it was that like a, 
it's tough to, I don't know how to define it because it's not that I thought I was going to be the best. I never thought that that was probable, but I, I guess I always wondered, you know, what if I, what if I could be? This, this alludes to, you know, foreshadows the future, I, I would <laughs> yeah. think, with Run at Once Poker um, and just why it is in existence, right? It, yeah. I think it, it does foreshadow. I don't want to skip ahead to that part of the story, though. I want to go back, but like, I think I can relate to this. I hope the listener can relate as well. That's mm-hmm. like, you just, you, at the end of the day, when the lights go out, when the curtain is closed, you want to know what you were made of. And you don't want to look back and think, I think I could have done it. And I wish I would have got involved. I wish I would have just tried just so I could know, just so I could rest with the knowledge that like, maybe I wasn't good enough, but maybe I was. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we all, um, in some way, even if we know better, like we're, we all live our lives through our eyes and we're all kind of like the star of our own movie. Um, and I think you, you, yeah, you just uh, kind of wonder. You hope you always, you know, dream big, whether you think it's realistic or not. There's the, at least for me, there's always the the dream. I remember, you know, when I was 14, I played high school football, and I was like, oh man, what if one day I could be in the NFL? Which I had zero percent chance. Um, five foot six, but yeah, you just always like. So that's to show, even when it was irrational, it's it's not just like I I had that wonder <laughs> in poker and I actually maybe and I actually kind of did it. Um, I just had that in everything, you know, that I was interested in. Like, what if I could really, really compete at a high level? Like, well, what was your home life? What was the influence of your parents on, on that thought? Because I feel like it's an important point. They, I mean, my, I had, I had a very good childhood. Um, my family was very supportive. Um, I was the first grandkid on both sides. So I had a lot of love and attention from, from all around, uh, all angles and, I was, I was, uh, especially, uh, as like a very little kid, I was, I was very advanced. And so not only was I the only, the only kid on the only grandkid on both sides, um, with a lot of, with a big warm family, but I was, you know, being told that I was, you know, you're very smart and yeah, yeah, I'm special. Yeah. So I'm sure that that contributed somewhat. I mean, I don't, I, I didn't, like, if you were to look through my, I mean, I was, I was a pretty poor student. Like I, I mean, I was like 3.0 student. Me too. But yeah, but I just never did any of the required work. I never studied. Um, I think I built bad habits in like, you know, elementary school because everything was super easy and I get straight A's without trying. And then by the time you get to middle school, high school, you can't get straight A's without trying, or I couldn't, at least I wasn't. Me neither. Yeah. (laughs) We're not smart enough. Yeah. So I built some bad habits there. I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't, I don't know other than that what contributed to it. But I guess, yeah, being told I was special um, from an early age um, could have could have contributed. It can't hurt. Can't hurt. Well, I mean, I think it can hurt in in a lot of ways, and I think could even contribute to um, some of my self doubt. Like if I'm if I'm like, if I'm doing something with no positive reinforcement, because I grew up so used to positive reinforcement. That's a great point. Um, so let's say I go, whatever, I post a training video and, and nobody says anything. <laughs> I'm like, oh, maybe this was bad. Maybe I, I guess, you know, so I, I think they're, look, everything that you, uh, 
everything that happens to you in childhood. Like it's, you can't get out of childhood without issues. Exactly. So. You can't, but it's better, better to be <laughs> yeah. like positively reinforced than negatively yeah. reinforced. Yeah. It's better to think you can do too much than to believe that you can do too little. And, um, yeah. so you, you moved up the stakes. Now I think we're in an appropriate time to introduce the relationship with Tom Dwan and his influence yeah. in your PLO career. Yeah. So once I was interested in playing PLO, um, I mean, the thing about Tom that he was always just extremely generous with his friends. And, you know, I was, uh, I mean, at that time, probably playing, I was already playing high stakes, no limit, but not like he was battling the best in both games all the time. So he was still, he was always a, a tier above me. And we were, I was playing some a WPT in Toronto, like Niagara, I think. And we were all staying in a hotel, a bunch of us. And he's just like, hey, I, I know you want to learn PLO. If you just want to come up and watch me play for a while, just let me know. And I was like, uh, yeah, I'd like that. <laughs> <laughs> and he was always just very, yeah, like, sure. Watch me play, ask me questions. And like, didn't mind just having me next to him. He's playing, you know, 200, 400 PLO, six tables. And just, yeah, ask a question if you want. He's, he was always um, just very generous with that. And I mean, I, it's not like learned everything um from him but it's obviously you know a very lucky uh fortunate situation to have to to learn from one of the best and the 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 really special thing about tom is that um he you know we talked earlier about kind of me taking advice of others too much and and all that um i kind of think of him as the prime example of the opposite um and he like he wasn't interested in what two plus two thought was standard he wasn't interested in what Glancy's book said he just figured things out on his own and he had his own theories and um you know more often than not they were right sometimes it had him doing some dumb stuff but more often than not he was doing things that you know he realized were good uh before any of us like that we wouldn't dare do because not what the book says you don't you right. don't do that exactly um so he was he is a great person to know for that reason because he kind of opened your mind to uh other things to the possibilities Sorry if there's background noise. There's no baby. I, I, <laughs> okay, cool. I understand. I can't. I can't hear anything. Very um, good. But it was like a, something I alluded to earlier. That was like you know with the blood, sweat, tears. He's pushing people. He's getting deeper in the decision tree where he has plans, and other people don't really have plans. They're kind of winging it. And yeah. like, there's just something to be said. Like in life, it seems so obvious. Like my grandparents, I cannot convince them to try sushi. I can't do it. Like not yeah. one time even though the downside is so small, like right. you, don't, you don't like it, but the upside is you get to enjoy it the rest of your existence. Right. And poker in some ways is similar in that, yeah, you can do things where you look like an absolute idiot. Yeah. And like, if you're okay with that, you can also learn things that you can use forever into the future or not forever because the game evolves, but for a long time into the future, that's yeah. above the rim that will take a while for the general population to catch up with. And so like, I'm always pressing my students. Like I want to see you punt. I want to see you be creative. I want to see you take shots because that's where the gold is. Like in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, I still like, I still remember like, I mean, this sounds silly to people who, you know, are, are, have only been around poker for five to 10 years, but, uh, or less, but like back then when you three bet, you see bet. And I would watch Tom would 
Tom would like three bet and not C bet. <laughs> and it's just like, why are you doing that? What's going on? But uh, yeah, like that's like, like I said, a lot of the things that he did, you know, turns out they were better. Um, but we didn't know at the time. And, and, you know, he was bluffing in spots where people had zero bluffs because they always had showdown value and they would never turn sh- like a showdown hand into a bluff. And a lot of things that seem silly to players now, but back then, you know, the game wasn't as advanced and the kind of common, you know, wisdom, uh, yeah, just didn't have you making plays like that. What's interesting is there's so much, you know, there's so much to gain. I did an episode of this show breaking down a hand. It was a tournament hand and it involved Kevin Rabichow and only accidentally, he was only on like the periphery of the hand where like he limped a button and then he wasn't even involved in the rest of the hand. But I was like, Telling my my student this, I didn't know who Kevin Rabichow was. Like I, I I look it up, he's like, let's see the player who limped on the button. I'm like, it's Kevin Rabichow. He's like, oh, he's my favorite run at once coach. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And so like we go into like breaking down the hand, and the point that I tried to make was like, if somebody does something who you know is thinking at a high level that is against what you currently know, you should likely investigate that something's happening there. There's something that you don't know that they know. And so trying to figure out like when a great player is doing something that just goes against all of your instincts and all your um, conventional wisdom, it's probably a, a good opportunity to dive in deep. Yeah, definitely. I, I, and, you know, fortunately for me, I've always been open to, uh, to things like that. Um, but I do think now, now that we're talking about it, I do think I kind of stayed within the kind of framework of what I'd learned from other people for a very long time, even as I was a successful high stakes player. And I think my skills kind of, or, or my edge came more from, I, I guess, hand reading and, um, then, then, you know, then my, uh, game plan, uh, I think I just, and, and so anyways, so I, I learned a little bit from Tom about PLO. I, I was watching card runners videos. I was watching um, a whole bunch of, uh, Brian Hastings and, uh, Brian Townsend. PLO videos, and I'd say I probably learned most most of my PLO game from Brian Hastings, uh, his videos. Nice. And when when Dwan did the the famous Dwan challenge mm-hmm. and excluded you, any specific reason for that? Y'all were just too good of friends. Didn't want to risk the friendship. I think he, I, I think it was a couple things. One, you know, we were we were good friends. Um, he knew I wasn't going to take him up on it, uh, anyways. Um, uh, but he had other friends who weren't going to take him up on it that he didn't didn't exclude, um, and I th- so I think it was that. And he did respect my game a lot, and I think he felt like it was the right thing to do to not include a challenge to me because he didn't want it to look like you know by me not accepting that I that I was you know not good enough. He also so threw it, you a bone too. Yeah. Because people re- people were like, the one guy is not playing. Who's this Phil Galfon guy? Like, let, mm-hmm. let's it, it raised your profile in a in a big way. I mean, we're talking about it right now because of that, right? Yeah, that's it's yeah. a very generous thing for him to do. Like in retrospect, for yeah. just you. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, 
He told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, you'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. Let's stop the story right now. So we're in the age of full tilt. You're playing the nosebleeds. A lot's going to happen after you buy your slide and (laughs) the infamous slide. (laughs) Right now, I want to ask you a couple more questions about, you know, the journey. And what would you say, uh, I hate breaking, hate breaking this up, but what's the most unexpected thing that had happened in your poker journey, we'll say up to this point. Right. Okay. So up to that point, it was all, you know, I ha- I just had no expectations. And so nothing kind of felt unexpected. I was just like, I was a kid playing a game and uh, just uh, going wherever it took me. So really nothing stands out to me at that point of, of something, something particularly unexpected. What do you make yeah. of that? What do you make of not having expectations? And can you can you ex, you know expand mm-hmm. on that? There is, I mean, it, there's definitely uh, there are definitely some advantages to being young without uh, responsibilities and without expectations, and the kind of the the wonder and the fearlessness that that comes along with that. You know, I was playing. I was playing uh, 300, 600, no limit when all of my friends were, were broke college kids. And it, and like I had used none of my money. Um, and the only thing that, like the, if I lost it all, I knew I'd be fine. I'd be like all my friends, I'd be fine. And so there was a, it, it really did for the longest time until I moved to New York. Um, but bought an apartment and uh, a condo and, and put a slide in, as you mentioned. <laughs> uh, it wasn't until then that, that my money was real. It was just in this game. Uh, it was just points in the game that you used to, I mean, I knew it was money, obviously, but it, it was, the perspective is so much different. And, you know, I, I just had no idea what my future was going to hold. I was it was yeah, it was a long time before I decided to kind of go pro or make that my my sole focus. And yeah, it was just you know, it's it was a really fun and exciting game. It never felt like a job to me. 
Um, and just that, yeah, kind of go with the flow and, uh, just, yeah, he's like, yeah, that mentality of it being a game. Um, I think, I think served me very well and, and a lot of other players too. There's a story that comes to mind. I believe it was Kevin Kelly on the Tim Ferriss show when he was in college, I believe it was, he decided to learn what it would be like in a worst case scenario. And so he backpacked around in Europe, um, had no money, did like odd jobs to survive, ate, you know, Vienna sausages or ramen noodles, whatever's like ultra cheap stuff to eat and just camped every night. And his takeaway from that experience after like six months, maybe a year, was that if everything goes horribly wrong in my life, it's not so bad. This is not such a bad thing to happen. And so I do see the parallel that you were like, if everything goes wrong, well, then I'm just like my friends, a broke college student, and it's not the end of the world. Yeah, life is still good. And uh, there's definitely, you know, over time, especially once you spend your money for the first time, you start to kind of grow, like you start to develop an attachment to it. uh, (laughs) That's when, uh, that's when it gets more scary to, to risk it, which is, I mean, both a good and a bad thing. Look, it's, it's good to have some better bankroll management and to um, have some savings set aside and things like that. It's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but there's definitely, you know, when you can play uh, with, with no fear at all, um, it, it, it's quite helpful, I think. Have you grown less risk averse as you've gotten a family, as you have expenses and bills and going through your life? Yes, but not as much as I probably should have. Um, I think it's, I have this, um, I have this mentality that kind of no matter what happens, I'll be able to figure it out. And I do think, I think right now that like if if we really think about it, it happens to be true because I've got you know I have the ability to play, I have the ability to teach, I have a brand. So if I actually just went entirely broke or in debt, I think I could pretty easily land on my feet. So that it actually is true for me now. But I I think I kind of had that feeling before that was true, and then probably still would have that feeling even if if that weren't true that I would figure it out. You know, it'd be a challenge and uh, there'd be some, some tough times, but I would figure it out. And I mean, in some ways I've, I've been like the last several years uh, has been a struggle with, you know, pouring um, so many resources into run one's poker. And uh, so I am kind of tell me about the struggle. Is there, is there doubt? What What does that struggle look like and feel like? Um, there's, so there's, there's been more, like in the last few years, there's been, I've had more financial stress than I have, I guess, at any point in my career. Um, and it's because, you know, running once poker, I've, I've put so much money in, it, it has taken like not only my own money, but anything that, that that's come through running once training that would have been uh profit, um, has gone in and, and, uh, yeah. And it continues, it has continued to, to require more. There's doubt in look i mean i don't know i i'm i'm confident in what we've built so far and what we've been built uh what we are still building 
um, very confident in the product that we're building and pretty confident in, you know, our ability to make good decisions for the business and our kind of vision for the types of policies and features that, that, uh, that should exist in the poker world and could be successful. But there's definitely a lot of doubt that it's going to work, but that's just realistic because the challenge of growing from a very small site, um, it, it just being a small site presents so many challenges. Um, I mean, namely liquidity. Uh, when you don't have liquidity, your product's worse and it's really hard to compete with a site that has, you know, traffic at whatever, uh, 100 and uh, all day, every day. Um, so it's an uphill battle. I have, I have some, you know, I, it, I don't know whether it's going to work or not, but, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's like doubt in the, in what we're doing. Um, but more just kind of being a realist and, um, you know, the, the challenge of building a site from scratch and, and fighting that uphill battle against, uh, competitors that are already so big, um, is, is a challenge that, that may be too big to overcome even with, uh, us doing everything quote unquote, right. I hope not. I, ho- I, I hope not too. I hope, yeah. <laughs> I, I very much hope not. The, the reason you may be on this show is because of the blog post that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And it was just, when I look at the poker landscape, especially in the United States, it's so bad right now. Yeah, it is. There's such limited options. Nobody's innovating. Nothing is improving. Customer service is getting worse. Like it's almost like in the last 15 years, you know, we talked about the the step tournaments and party. Like they're innovating. They're trying new things that had never been done because there's competition in the market. They're trying to differentiate themselves, and that's just stopped happening. And I want run at once poker. I say this with every fiber of my being i want it to be successful because i it it is number one i trust you i I think that i I trust you to look after the player and to think about the player because this is what i think about all the time is like the player's experience how do we do the right thing for the players and you're the you're the one entity that i know is going to put the player first and so i want to do anything in my power my audience's power your audience's power like, what can we do to give Run It Once Poker a higher chance of success moving forward? It's a great question. And I think we're, you know, we're kind of seeing the, the, how limited we are as a community in terms of kind of, um, well, g- making things happen and, and giving consequences to both, you know, good and bad um, actors uh we're seeing you know people complain about this site or that site yet the traffic is still there and and when you're a poker player whether it's recreational and you're playing for fun and you want a big guarantee or you want traffic at the time that you're available to play or you're a pro and it's your livelihood it's really difficult to to go against your best interests in an effort to quote unquote do the right thing prisoner's dilemma yeah, it's, 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 and I wouldn't ask anybody to, it's re, it's a really big challenge. Um, you know, what people can do to, to help run at once poker is to, to play when 
they can. And when there's, if there's volume at their stakes where they can try to start games at the stakes they play. Um, and it's, you know, people, obviously people with audiences can, can spread the word, but realistically it's, it's a challenge because, you know, it's tough for you to tell, you know, if you have students and that are trying to earn a living playing poker to tell them to, to move their bankroll and their volume to a site that has their stakes running one fifth of the time as often as, as poker stars or GG poker or whatever it may be. And so it, it is really challenging. The biggest challenge is like a lot of your audience, I don't know how much you know the analytics, but I would assume the majority of your audience are U.S. players. Like you have a lot of, a, a large American audience that cannot play on run at once poker. Yeah, I think about, I think probably half. I mean, it depends what you're, you're, we're calling my audience, but I think about half is probably uh, U.S. based and they can't play. Uh, on one's poker and you know there are others in in countries that can't play whether it be australia or france or who knows is, is there any talk of you know some sort of partnership to get you into the u.s like somebody whatever partnering with some land-based casino or something that wants to fund a transition to online poker in the u.s is this even possible it is possible um and it's something that you know we've talked about and periodically have have talked to individuals or businesses about um, but the, the problem is, you know, we're not feature complete or we don't have a full platform yet and we're working towards it. But the problem with, um, with trying to arrange, uh, any kind of partnerships like that is, you know, we have to say, Hey, um, we need your help. You need to invest in us so we can finish developing our platform faster. And then, you know, in a year, we're going to have this, this, and this, and we'll be completely ready. Um, and you know, they, they have, anytime somebody, uh, is, is kind of pitching another business or individual on what they're going to be able to do and, and where they see the future going. I mean, people are used to that being exaggerated and, and used to that, you know, whether it's exaggerated intentionally or unintentionally, because, you know, the founders expectations are unrealistic. Um, it, it's hard to, I, I think it would be something that's more viable once we've completed our product. But what, one can make the argument that GG is feature incomplete and that WSOP.com in the US is feature incomplete. Like one could make these arguments that there's still a lot of room for improvement on these. You, you could. Know. And I mean, I think more so on the, the WSOP side, uh, but they have, you know, they have cash games, they have sit and goes, they have multi-table tournaments. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I think that, I think probably you know, getting sit and goes and multi-table tournaments complete, even if we don't have all the features that we've dreamt up, uh, would be enough to kind of make us, well, at least, well, yeah, it would be enough to make us feel, uh, that we have, you know, mostly complete product and it would definitely be enough to make other people feel that we, you know, have complete product. Cause, cause those are a lot of the things that we might want to add beyond that are unique and, you know, aren't needed if we're comparing us to, to somebody else. I hope, I hope you can figure out a way to reduce stalling. This is my, this is my biggest pain point in yeah. life is stalling um, online and in real life. I think like the, yeah. the incentive model is so the incentive model is broken when stalling becomes a thing that generates profit. Like it becomes like a good strategy. Like when a thing is a good strategy that is yeah. bad for user experience it needs to be rethought and the incentives in my opinion ought to be reconsidered. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I mean, I, we saw that kind of in the, um, we've seen when, when Gigi, when it, we saw on social media when Gigi's banning, banning winning players and, and things like that, or players that exhibit certain behavior. Um, you know, an argument that I saw and that I agree with is if certain behavior, if, if you don't want players to behave in a certain way, then you need to, you need to adjust your game structure or your, your games to disincentivize it. It's pretty um, obvious. That's the way. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way I, I feel as well. Now, disincentivizing stalling, um, I think it takes a lot of creativity. And it actually, does. I'm, we're, um, we've, we've, we're so, we're still, you know, quite far away from completing MTT. So it's actually not something we've, we've brainstormed recently. It's something we probably <laughs> talked about four or five years ago and um, haven't revisited. But I do think there's always a, a way or there's always at least a, a partial way um, to, to get creative and think of some things that, that improve experiences like that. For sure. You could give people chips for taking under a certain amount of time over the course of a tournament, like incentivize them by increasing their stack and giving them like free chips. You can, you can do it in in a bunch of ways. And I'm putting kind of putting the cart before the horse here because just get the MTTs out, Phil, (laughs) people can play. And once you have critical mass and you're raking in the money and everything's good, then you can innovate and uh, create the platform that you're dreaming about, right? Yeah, it is It is always tough because on the one hand, we, we're a new site, or I mean, we're not as new anymore. We're a small site competing with a lot of big sites. And so I, I do think differentiating ourselves is important when, you know, if people want to play uh, whatever, whatever traditional poker um, with all the same features that they're used to there are better places for them to play. You're underestimating one thing. Mm-hmm. You're underestimating you and how much people yeah. love you and how much people yeah. would say, I want Phil Galfon to succeed. I'm going to play in these tournaments on his site because I feel good about giving him my rake. I feel good about supporting him and his product. I think that's like, that's the most important ingredient to the whole, the whole thing is like, if you have a thing, that is exactly the same as stars. I can tell you, folks will want to play on your thing, other over stars. I sort, I partially agree, but it's not going to be when we launch tournaments. If we launch tournaments tomorrow, which we're not going to, sorry, um, it would not be the same as stars because they have a six million dollar guarantee or a, a you know, however many tournaments a day. And we're, we won't be able to support that. And so I do think, I mean, I think what we're seeing it with our cash games, um, we have people who do, we do have people who play just because they want to support us. Um, and we have a lot of people who play because they love the software and they love the games and they actually would play even if they weren't trying to support me. Um, I think what we do get that is really helpful is we do get people who We'll we'll share stories about us. We'll write stories about us. We'll stream when they uh, probably wouldn't have if we were, whatever. If we were, you know, Unibet. Who I mean, they're bigger than us, um, and they're actually. I really like Unibet. I'm not. I'm not saying anything bad about them. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, like, I think that actually because we're because we're running once and because of me, we get we get more of that than we quote unquote deserve for our size. Yeah. Um, that- so I do think we have a leg up in that respect. Um, I mean, if you look at, if you go to Poker Scout and look at like cash game traffic, we get more media coverage than, you know, half the sites that are, that are, have more traffic than us. 
Yeah. Um, so we do have that going for us. Um, but at the end of the day, are, are people going to come over and play a, you know, like, are they going to keep, keep part of their bankroll on our site so that they can play the, the weekly, whatever, uh, 100K guarantee when they have, you know, they can have that every day at, at whatever other site. Um, In the back is, of my mind, you never know until you try. And that's true. That's true. We're going to try. You, you got to start somewhere, right? Like maybe you don't yeah. get a Sunday million right away, but everything starts, everything's got to start somewhere. Yeah, no. And we are trying and, you know, we're a small team and, and, uh, I'm always, uh, kind of <laughs> whenever faced with the reality of how slow, uh, uh, development is like not, I mean, it's not, it's not a problem unique to us. It just is how it is. It's life. Um, it is life and it, and I'd love for things to be, you know, uh, released as soon as I can think of them, but, um, <laughs> we are, we are working towards it. Um, I do think we've continued to get, like we've continued to improve as a company in a lot of ways that, that the public doesn't see. Um, and that includes our, our development team and, and kind of the, the speed at which we can turn things around and test things. And I'm excited about where we're heading. It's just, you know, not there yet. I, I hope that you keep on keeping on and that you will eventually get there. I, I genuinely do. Thank uh, you. We... Let's, let's move on to a lightning round, which is um, not always so lightning-y, but we'll try. Yeah, I can warn you, I'm terrible at lightning rounds. And uh... I believe you. I've, I've seen your videos on Run at Once. Yeah. Seen, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one hand, we're 25 minutes in to like the turn, <laughs> turn yep. analysis of one hand. Um, but that's okay. I think the audience won't mind. Um, okay. when you think about joy in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? I guess winning my first bracelet, uh, back in 2008. Why that? Why then? Why was that so impactful? It was, you know, even though I had kind of passed that point that we talked about earlier, where I was like, I just want to play these big tournaments. I want to, uh, I want the glory. Um, I, I wasn't thinking about that as much, but there's still that part of me in there that, you know, I mean, a bracelet's a bracelet. And I had, I had achieved a lot when it comes to, I mean, specifically in online cash games, but, you know, I wasn't recognized by, uh, by by anybody outside the online poker world, and it and it just felt very legitimizing. Even though I knew that you know winning a tournament is largely variance, um, you know your your parents don't know that, and your friends don't your your friends outside of poker don't know that. And yeah, it was it was a bit of a dream come true. That's awesome. It, it, it's a glory, you know. It's the prestige. Yeah. The prestige is in the winning the big tournaments. The cash game players don't get the prestige. We just kind of fly under the radar and yeah. make our living and anonymously, and nobody knows. Um, but yeah, the, I, I could I, I see the the appeal of the prestige, right? Like it raises your profile. It allows yeah. you to create content, and people will buy it because you're a bracelet winner now. Even though, like, effectively, you're not a better poker player than you were a week ago. It's just right. a credibility indicator. Um, the opposite question, when you think about pain in your poker career, what's the first memory that comes to mind? There was one session that I lost. Um, I think I must've lost like 400 K when I had like 800 K. So I I lost half my bankroll in one session. Um, 
yeah. I mean, uh, and that was like, I had, I had obviously was playing higher than I should have. And so I'd had some, some downswings like that, but yeah, that one was particularly painful because it, it just required such a big step down and was such like a big difference in, in terms of where I was at, um, just from, you know, over the span of six hours or whatever it was. Yeah, it's a pretty tough uh, yeah. losing half your bankroll 400K over the span of six hours. Yeah. How long did it take you to recover after that? Mentally? Mentally, it, it never takes me too long. I think probably like normally a, a pretty significant loss. I'm over for the most part, like the next day. That probably took maybe three days. But I do, um, I do a pretty good job of, or I think I do a very good job of, um, all it requires is for me to kind of reset and accept my new reality. And once I do, and I, I'm like, okay, so now I, now I have 400 K that's, you know, that's not so bad. And, and now I'm going to play these games and I have a new goal and I'm going to work up from here. Um, as soon as I kind of get out of the mindset of this is where I was and this is where I, you know, like how far I have to go to get back to where I was. Yeah. It, I get over it pretty quickly. And that's so like during a session where I'm losing a lot, it's, it's a struggle for me and I'm, I'm sad, but as soon as like, sometimes as soon as I get out of the session, but a lot of times just the next day, um, once I mentally reset, I, I recover pretty quickly. Is this always been the case? Has this something that's improved over time? No, it's always been the case. Um, and I don't know why that is, but I do know I'm, I'm very lucky and, and it's, it's the reason I've, I've never struggled with like taking shots and then moving back down rather than chasing losses because I, I like, uh, once I, once I have kind of my new baseline and, and, um, you know, my new reality and uh, yeah, I've accepted my new reality, then I'm just excited to, to make progress from there. So it, it, may, it puts the time you took off at, in the middle of Vini Vidi into even more context as yeah. to how much of a struggle that was recalibrating. Yeah, because even even um, for most of the downswing, even when I was down, you know, six hundred k, I really felt like I could make the comeback. I was really thinking about like, uh, well, getting back to even and beyond. And once once I took the break, I was like, you know what, I'm probably I'm probably not going to make a comeback. But my new reality is, you know, here's where I'm at. I've lost this much money, and. Um, let's, I, I think, I think I can be a favorite. Um, so let's earn some EV. Let's, let's like put up a good fight and let's make, you know, make a little money from here. What made you think you had some EV after getting your face broken <laughs> session after session after session? That's a good question. Um, I, I just really felt like, and I was starting to doubt it towards the end um, for the break. I really felt like I, I don't know. I just really felt like I had an edge. I saw things that he was doing that I thought were wrong and I thought I could take advantage of. Obviously, he's a super strong player. I don't mean to imply that uh, anything else, but I really felt hey, like... We're human here. We're fallible. <laughs> yeah. This is not... you know, You're never going to yeah, reach yeah. perfection in poker. Yeah. And I don't know. I really felt like there were some things that I could take advantage of um, and some spots where I understood... Like some spots that I understood better than him and, and I felt like my my kind of strategy was pretty sound and I, I was still struggling with confidence. Um, but, uh, over the break, I also played a lot, not a lot, but I, I played a good amount of just like 
5100 zoom and 2550 zoom against a lot of good regulars who are you know considered to be as good as many some some considered to be better and i had good results and it wasn't a massive sample but it was reasonably big and i was i was i don't know i at that point i played like eight or nine thousand hands against him and was losing it some i don't know like 40 big blinds per hundred or something i don't remember but um but then over like almost half that many hands i was winning at that same rate which obviously was variance in both directions but um it did help me like well it's it helped me regain the confidence um and made me yeah and remove some doubt basically um did you have thoughts of quitting like was that a it was a heavily considered option yeah there was there was basically never a point where i felt like i'm where i felt like there was never a point where i thought it was more likely than not that i was uh an underdog i never thought i was an underdog i i mean i i knew at all points that i could have been wrong but there was never a point where i was like you know what i think i'm i think i'm probably outmatched here but at the there was definitely consideration to you know what the side bet equity is gone basically like my chances of making a full comeback are, are next to nothing and why don't i just like move on i have some other challenges against people who are not as tough why don't i just move on play those and you know what what am i really like why do i need to 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 continue playing him when the, when the side bet equity is gone but yeah um it's the one thing me and Nick Howard actually did a podcast in the middle of this where mm-hmm. I declared you just dead in the water, which is like <laughs> well, still, I mean, still exists. And like me and Nick Howard, you know, we went deep into like the mental game aspect of it. And also like, you know, you had action freak coming up who some people thought was a stronger player than Vini Vidi. Mm-hmm. And what do you do about action freak when Vini Vidi is, crushing your soul right like how do you approach that match should you just concede the action freak before it begins right like these are i think they're legitimate questions that ought ought to have been considered um i don't think that you because of the positioning of your company and the challenge and everything i don't really think that's a reasonable option but it was a thing though i think the one thing that i did not take into consideration or didn't put any weight into was at no point during this thing had we seen Vini's reaction to a downswing? We had yeah. never seen Vini's emotional response when things just didn't go his way. And I think that, that that was something that I probably undervalued or underappreciated when I was thinking about how you were going to proceed after being stuck almost 900, I think. Yeah, I mean, a, a, and that argument kind of goes both ways because a big part of a heads-up match like that is, you know, when things are, like even at the highest levels, when things are going your way, you're confident. Um, you you can execute really well. Um, you you don't you don't have much fear in making the plays you think are best. And when things are not going your way, it's it's kind of all the opposite of that. And um, it even goes as far as like if somebody's running good, you don't really get a sense of like how, not just how they handle it emotionally, but how they handle as many difficult spots in hands. And like maybe maybe you. Um, like get into a certain situation and you get check raised 40 times and you call 20 of them and they have value 90% of the time. And so you're like, 
are they bluffing enough? Are they not bluffing enough? I don't really know because he just keeps having a good hand. Um, so there's actually like, you don't, you, you don't even get to learn a lot about the way your opponent's playing when they're running really hot. Um, so in, in one way, like you said, it's an argument for, you know, my kind of, uh, edge up to that point or like the, the, the edge one way or the other, you know, I was fighting against the odds as well. Like there were things going against me that contributed to my win rate or loss rate as well. And maybe if they shifted the other way, it would shift things a lot, but there's also, this was a heavy consideration for me for, for quitting the match. Like even when I come back after a break, these things are still kind of true. He's still going to be confident. I'm still going to have these doubts. I still, uh, he's still like, perhaps has like an informational advantage uh, in the way that like he's seen how I play in it, these like marginal hands and tough spots. And I just keep seeing him have the nuts. And so I don't even know how he's, how he's playing those spots. So those things are still true. It, it goes both ways. Yeah. You could have, you know, you look like a hero because of the result. It, well, could yeah, have gone, but... <laughs> it could have gone the other way, right? You lost Very 900K easily. once. You could have lost 900 more. There was nothing preventing that outcome. Um, yeah. I hope you had a documentary filming this thing. Like, this is like the, the greatest poker story. Like, I wish I, I wish time. I did. I wish I did. Obviously, I didn't know it was going to play out the way it did. Um, <laughs> and I, and I kind of thought that, uh, that, you know, well, we, I had some thoughts about trying to, you know, put together some sort of mini documentary after the fact, but I just think, I think they needed to be there. Like, uh, I did film, um, I did film all my sessions, uh, including webcam. Um, don't have any plans. Oh, I want to see, I want to see the wife's, the wife's reaction. Like yeah. I want to feel sad on a beach <laughs> <laughs> sitting yeah. in a cabana somewhere, just like, Oh, sky. Like then the montage in the desert where you just come back and, you know, bring it all home. Yeah. Uh, that's no, what we I don't, we don't, we don't have it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, okay. We got about, 10 more minutes here. Let's more lightning y, right. um, less roundy. Okay. Let's, uh, if you could gift all poker players one book to read, poker or non poker, what would it be? That's really, really hard, especially because I don't read many books. Piece of content, just something that is important Damn. to you. This is, not, this is not very lightning y, as expected. <laughs> I love the Phil Donovan uh, interview of I don't read very much. I wasn't very good at school and yeah. I'm a degenerate with my bankroll management. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 the truth. Um man. I guess I'll just I'm gonna go with um elements of poker because it's it's one of the few few books I've read that I can remember and uh I do think that you know any any kind of I think learning how to how, uh, about how to handle yourself as a pro and how to handle tough situations um, is a lot more important than anything you're going to learn strategically uh, from from one source. Tommy Angelo will probably love that. He's coming on in a couple of weeks for round two, nice. Um, so he'll probably be super happy that Elements of Poker got the got the shout Tommy, out. I think Tommy's always happy. I know He's he just, is. He is, you know, he's yeah. like the, the whole like poker goat tournament that was going on on Twitter. Like he's emailing me like, this is the most fun I've had since Twitter. I just love this. Like, he's just always super upbeat and happy. And like, 
that's something that I'm I'm jealous of because I go yeah. through I go through my phases of happy and then not so happy. Yeah. No, me too. I uh, he's it's amazing that that he's able to do that. It's it's pretty awesome. Or at least it seems that way. Obviously, we don't know what goes on. Yeah, we um, don't know. The first conversation I had with him, he did mention a time that he wanted he considered suicide because of a bad bad poker session. So like this is like this is the reality I think in that like with Nick Howard and diving into mindset and spending so much energy in a mindset, you almost know that somebody who becomes an expert at something, like somebody that becomes an expert in being happy and living a fulfilled life has probably been through it. And yeah. this is the other side, right? They've yep. been through all the things and this is the natural evolution of them. Yeah, definitely. Um, if you could record, uh, if you could erect a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on the metaphorical way to the casino. What does your billboard say? Oh, run a one study you. <laughs> there you go. Shameless yeah. promotion. Yeah. Just, just like I wanted. What's something people would be surprised to learn you're horrible at? Well, okay. I'm not, I'm not horrible at it, but people would probably be surprised to know that I'm, I'm probably like average at, doing math in my head like arithmetic yeah that's reasonable i think math is both overrated and underrated in poker um i'm good at math on like a general level but not at yeah not that not at bill chin's level right that's the, no, <laughs> no not not comparing ourselves to to bill chin there's a carbon copy of phil galfond right now 20 years old you get to sit down with him and give him some wisdom. What would you say to young Phil Galfon? Um, I would say um, kind of follow, uh, do things that you're passionate about um, and follow your passion, uh, things that you're interested in, have fun doing. And um, you know, th- these are all kind of cliches, but I really believe, uh, and you know, surround yourself with people that you like being around. Um, Has that ever been a problem? for you not uh not necessarily in like i would i wouldn't say either of those things have been a problem for me but i like i think everyone you know sometimes you end up with with friends or acquaintances that you'd rather not be around or working with people that like you might say okay well yeah this person is is not that pleasant to work with but they're so good at this thing or you know i i think they you know i maybe like yeah this person maybe i don't know if i trust them or not but like they could help me learn poker really well like i i just yeah just uh, even if it um basically like in those cases i'm not saying it's the best path to success in, in poker or another career but you know life's also about enjoying your life oh and, my god um, yeah you, you can you know if you have slightly lower ev um whether it's with a poker coach or poker student or a business partner, whatever it is, uh, whether you have slightly lower EV being like, but, it, but enjoy all your time and, and avoid the stresses of kind of negativity. I think it's well worth it. Yeah. It's something I see. I saw at commerce, like I was playing 60 hours a week and a lot of the guys that I played against were miserable. Like yeah. the regs, they're just miserable. And, and it, it's so sad to me. It's so tragic that like, you're spending your life force being miserable. Like we're on a journey here that's meant to be enjoyed. 
and you're just not happy. Like find something else that makes you happy, right? Like all of my experiences in poker are all centered. My favorite things that I've gained from the game are friendships and relationships and like spending time with these guys and like laughing at the table and having a good time. It's not just the grind with my head down and like the biggest pot that I've won. I don't know the biggest pot that I've ever won, but I can tell you specific memories when people became, you know, they went from acquaintances to friends that Mm. will last a lifetime. And like, there's nothing more valuable than that to me. So just enjoy the ride. If you're on your poker journey, enjoy your time at the table. If you're going to spend 60 hours a week doing something, you may as well enjoy it while you're there. Absolutely. Um, Okay. So, We'll wrap it up. Final question. Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Probably, I mean, the best place is uh, Twitter, at Phil Galfond. Um, but runatonce.com is uh, where I create training content and uh, you can interact with me there. Uh, comment on my videos, ask me questions. And um, of course, runatonce.eu is, you probably won't, find me and to interact with on that website but uh you're there in spirit i'm there in spirit yeah and also since you're funneling your money from run at once poker to the poker platform i think one way to support the venture is just have a run at once training account right yeah you can yeah you can do that from the u.s you can do that anywhere awesome man it's been great having you on the show i really hope we we can do this again in a couple of years and you're just balling out of control and (laughs) you know rio's making its u.s debut and all the good things are happening because honestly we need you like i am not super excited about the trajectory of poker right as it stands today that's why that's why running once poker was was founded because i was i was nervous about the trajectory of online poker. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing everything I can. I'll continue to definitely. Awesome, brother. Take care, be safe, have a great rest of your day and uh, catch you next time. Yeah. Thanks. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of chasing poker and greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.